So I was reminded of back when I was a junior in high school this week. I had a teacher by the name of Miss McGowan, and my sister is, is visiting with us. Did you have Miss McGowan as a teacher? Okay, so we both are. She was my junior history teacher in uh, U.S. history. And I remember one day she said, I need you to stay after class. And I was like, okay, great. What did I do? And uh, so I went up to the desk after class, and she's like, you know what? I can tell you're just bored in my class. I was like, well, you know, what do you say? You know, when you're not, you're 11th grade, you don't have a lot of tact, you know. Um, but I was like, well, you know, it's okay. And she says, well, I can just tell you're not very challenged. And then I was like, uh-oh, I don't know where this conversation's going, but I don't feel a good thing coming on here. And she says, so here's what we're going to do. You're going to do an extra research paper. Yeah, I wasn't laughing. And uh, so, so she assigned me this paper. And I um, was like, I can't believe this. And, like, I was getting an A in the class. I was doing fine. She's like, no, you need to be more challenged. And, and so I came up with this. I did a paper in Abraham Lincoln. And I came up with this great outline on Abraham Lincoln's life. And I don't remember it, sorry. But it was all alliterated and everything. In fact, the outline was so good, I included it in the paper. Usually you outline before you write the paper. I made sure that every point of my outline that was good made it into the paper. I was pretty cocky and pretty proud of that thing. And, I, you know, Miss McGowan was nice, too. She's like, you're, you're right. That is a pretty good outline. And, and I got a good grade in, in the paper, and I got a good grade in class. And, I, and I, at the end of it, I don't know that I enjoyed doing it, but I felt pretty good about what I'd come up with. Well, fast forward a, a few years, I was finishing my master's degree, and to finish my master's degree, I had to do a research paper, like the biggest research paper I'd ever done, and like this was just like more than just like going to the, the books. We used to use books to do research papers and, and uh, doing note cards and those types of things, and, and this was like actually interviews and, and all kinds of reading and all this different stuff, and I remember I compiled this mini thesis together and turned it in and I forget it was like 50 60 pages and it was like the biggest thing I'd ever written before in my life and I can remember turning it in but right before you turn it in the last thing you do when you're putting together a paper like that is the title page and you know you put the the, the title of the work and you know the class the date and whatever and then you put your name at the bottom of it and I remember how good I felt actually for two reasons I felt good about the project I also felt good because that was the last thing I turned in when I was working on my master's degree. But it, it was one of those things where it was like, yeah, I, I felt pretty good about what I just did there. Now, it doesn't have to be something that you've written that you can feel good about, but you know that feeling sometimes. You're like, yeah, I did that. Maybe, maybe it's a home improvement project and you get done and you step back and you're like, yeah, check that out. I did that, and it, and it looks pretty good. Or, or maybe it's, a, you know, something like the birthday cake you made for your kid's birthday, and I don't know what it was, you know, Elmo or a race car or whatever, and you get done, and you're like, yeah, that's pretty good. And you feel good about what you've done there. Maybe it's a car that you restored, or maybe it's a special project at work, or maybe you're a painter, and at the bottom, you always put that little autograph, that little signature, there's a certain pride that comes with what you've done and you want to be associated with it. So this morning, we're starting, or we're looking at the next poem in our Poets' Corner series here. And it's probably, arguably, the greatest poem in the Bible. And we have no idea who wrote it. Now, if I'd written it, I want to make sure that somehow somebody, you know, got that in there. But it didn't really matter who wrote it. 
It just mattered what's said. Now, we have some guesses who might have written it, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And some of them are pretty wild. But we do know why this poem was written. And it was written simply to celebrate the Word of God and to celebrate the difference that it can make in a person's life. Now, as Mark already mentioned here earlier, one of our purposes here is we want people to experience God. But one of the greatest ways that you can experience God is actually through God's Word and actually through the Bible. I was recently having a conversation with somebody who was just questioning about faith, and not a, not a Christian, not a believer um, at that point. And I sat down. I remember I was sitting at the table, and I sat across from her, and I was like, um, so, so tell me, what do you know about the Bible? And she, I still remember she went, nothing. And I'm like, well, like, you know, did like go to church at all growing up? Nope. Like, you've heard some stories. She said, well, I have to ask you about one. I'm like, okay. She's like, there's that story like this guy who got swallowed by a whale. Is that really in there? And I was like, well, yeah. She's like, okay, do you believe that? And I'm like, well, let's talk about, you know, like, yes, I do. But there's other things we can talk about here. But the Bible can seem really imposing and really inaccessible and we can come to church, and by the way, that person that I sat down and talked to several weeks later ended up trusting Christ. Really amazing story. But we come to church sometimes because, you know, at least, you know, you know Brent, you can open up the Bible and help it make sense to me. Or you can kind of t point where we need to go this week. And I always hope that when you get to church that, that we open up the Bible and you look at that and go, oh, well, I could have figured that out. I'm never trying to impress you with, with every, any, anything that, like, I've gotten. What I want to impress you with is the idea that we all can get stuff out of this book. And I just try to give you some, maybe some entry points, and hopefully you'll take it a little bit further. But if you look at the Bible, even as a, a Christ follower, if you look at the Bible and go, I don't always get that, or I don't always know how to jump into that, or I don't always know how to use it, or I don't really understand the, the whole role that it's supposed to play in my life, I hope that as we look at this poem this morning, we can give you some help. Now, the primary collection of poems in the Bible is found in Psalms. Now, about a third of the Bible is actually written in poetry form, but the biggest collection is the book of Psalms, and that's normally what we think of when we think of poetry in the Bible. We looked at it in our very first week when we started this series, the oldest psalm that's in the book, and that's Psalm 90. It was written by Moses. It's the only one that we know of that he wrote, so he had the uh, solitary contribution was actually the oldest uh, song in the book. But this week we look at the longest, and it's one, or Psalm 119. And I want to encourage you to turn with me there this morning, because we're going to look at a lot of verses in Psalm 119. And it might even be easier to use the, the one that's on the rack in front of you. So that's up to you. I know a lot of times you just use your phones. But uh, if the, the one on the rack in front of you might be easier, that would be fine. There's 176 verses here. I won't be reading them all this morning, okay? If I were to read this, it would take about 15 minutes. And uh, we will just kind of be working our way through them. But I do want to make just like one point. If you look at your outline in the bulletin, you're like, boy, there's a lot of points there. We'll go through this pretty quickly. But there's one point that I really want to make this morning, and it's this. The Bible has the ability to transform your life. Maybe you've read a book in, in your life, and you're like, okay, boy, that book was really, really like, life-transforming. And, and, 
And we've had those experiences, and, and I've had that experience too. I can remember a book when I read with, in my late 20s that totally changed the trajectory of my spiritual life. But even that can't compare to what the Bible can do to transform your life in so many ways. So this poem has 176 verses. It's broken down into 22 stanzas, and each of these stanzas is eight verses long. So in keeping with that idea of eight, we're going to talk about eight unusual facts about this poem, eight Hebrew words that are repeated over and over again in this book, and then eight experiences that you can have. And then just to mix it up, we'll finish up with three responses that we can make to this all. So that's 27 points that I need to make in the next 25 minutes. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Here's just some interesting facts about this uh, chapter, this poem, this psalm. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, actually. It's 176 verses. That's equal to about the sizes of the entire book of Ruth or Philippians or James. That's just that one chapter there in Psalm. Secondly, it's an acrostic poem. It's divided into 22 stanzas, and each stanza begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order. So for us, it would be like the first stanza would be the A stanza, the second stanza would be the B stanza, the third stanza would be the C. And you can look, either in the Bible or in your, in your phone there, at the beginning of each stanza, it has some weird word there. Those, that's the Hebrew alphabet that you're looking at there. So the writer of this started each stanza with the next consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, but he didn't just start the stanza with it. Every verse in the stanza was started with that same letter. So the equivalent for us would be like all of the first eight verses would start with A. All of the next eight verses would start with B. All of the next eight verses would start with C. So it's a, a literary masterpiece in how it's actually put together like that. I already mentioned this, but we don't, I think, we don't know who wrote this book. Most people think that David wrote this book. Some think that he wrote it to teach the Hebrew alphabet to his son. Seems like a lot of work uh, to teach the alphabet. That's just conjecture. There's another suggestion that says that maybe it was Ezra who wrote this. Ezra was a scribe, and, and we see him show up a little bit later in the Old Testament from David. Other people think that this was actually a compilation, that it may have been like almost to modernize it, like an assignment given in a seminary to 22 kids in the class, and everybody had to write their, their stanza with the, uh, their eight verses that had to start with the same letter. I don't know where that comes from. And here's the craziest one that I've seen out there, is that every one of the 176 verses was written by a different person. I have no idea where that comes from, but the one thing we are pretty sure of is that this was not just one of those things that somebody sat down and scribbled out on a napkin. This took a lot of work, and it took a lot of time to put this together. And actually, when we talk about works of art, this is a literary work of art. The fourth thing here, the central theme or focus is the Word of God. In fact, some variation of the Word of God or, or a phrase that refers to the Word of God is used in all but about five verses. So as you read through there, it's just over and over again something that says something about the Word of God. Number five, the Jews would read it to celebrate, or they do, to read uh, Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. In Orthodox monasteries, the monks gather at midnight, and they read it on a daily or nightly, I guess, basis. 
So it's a really highly prioritized poem, especially as you go back into some of the ancient practices. And we've been, as we've been emphasizing here, even in our monthly theme this, uh, this month in June. Number six, it was actually written as a prayer. If you read through this, the author is praying this in a sense. So it's a conversation that he's having with God. And it's a conversation about God's word. And so that just, if you, give, if you take that perspective on it, it opens up some, some, uh, some interesting insights. The seventh thing here, just interesting facts, is how it has impacted so many different people. Charles Spurgeon, maybe as a name is familiar to some, uh, a great preacher in England from a century ago. But uh, he called it the golden alphabet. The golden alphabet. And he said, um, what other, and, and he was, I'm paraphrasing here, but when he says, when you talk about the Bible, he said, is there any other subject that could actually have 176 verses written about it, all from a different angle? That was Spurgeon's take on it. John Calvin wrote 22 sermons about this chapter, one on each stanza of, of the uh, chapter. Matthew Henry, that name may be familiar to some of you who use his uh, commentary, one of the classics of commentaries. When he was a teen, his father challenged him to read one verse of, of Psalm 119 every day. And so for through his, all, his teen years, twice a year, he read through Psalm 119, just a verse at a time. And some suggest that maybe that's where he got his love for the word in, in doing the commentary. I thought this was interesting. This name didn't mean much to me, but a guy by the name of George Wishart was the Bishop of Edinburgh in the 1700s. And for whatever reason, he was sentenced to die, and they led him to the gallows. But the tradition back then is that you could choose a psalm to be sung before you were executed. He chose this one. And before they got two-thirds of the way through singing this psalm, somebody arrived with a pardon, and his life was spared. So just an interesting tidbit from history there. Now, this is what I think is also interesting, too. This isn't really a poem about the Bible, and yet it talks about the Bible constantly. But don't miss this. It's a poem about the author of the Bible. And how the author of the Bible wants to use that tool, his word, to change your life. Now, as we go through this poem, there are eight different words that are used to describe the word of God. They're very similar, but they give us a different vantage point, each of them. It's very possible that the author of this poem used these eight different words just to have a little variety. So you're not just reading the same word over and over again in every single verse. But we see this uh, used in intermittently in different places, but these eight different words. And I'm just going to briefly go through these here just to give you an idea, though, of, of how the, the, the author sees God's word from different vantage points. So the first one, if, if you look with me in verse number one, it says this, Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord, that's the Hebrew word Torah. You've heard that before. That's usually what we describe the, uh, the, uh, the Pentateuch with, the, uh, the commands that, that uh, Moses wrote down. And it simply means this. It's God's instructions. These are what God instructs us to do. So those who walk according to God's instructions. That's the first word that we see throughout this chapter. Another word that we see representing God's word throughout this chapter is the word statutes. 
That's used um, 23 different times. You can see it here in, in verse number 2. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with a whole heart. In some translations you'll look at that uses the word testimonies. But these are actually God's written insights. So you add that little tag to it there that it's written. But anything that's written becomes a permanent witness. And so this was actually uh, a reminder of what God said. And you could always go back. You can always go back and check it. This is what God said. It's written. There it is. It stands as a witness to what he said. The third word that shows up is precepts. And these are God's covenants or God's agreements that he offers to us that are provided as he is the overseer. And they're relational in nature. You see them in verse number four. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed, but you've given these precepts. These are the, 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 the guidelines that we're going to live under that you've given to us as the overseer of our lives, as the one who cares about us, is the idea there. The fourth word is decrees. And just to make it confusing, some translations use the word statutes here. Okay? But the idea of this, and you see it in verse number 5, Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. This word is, talks about something that's engraved or cut. And the, the, the concept here is that God's word is engraved, actually, on our hearts, that it becomes like a permanent part of who we are. Oh, that my ways were steadfast. Obeying what I want to be, like, impressed or, or engraved on my heart. The fifth one is commandments. And you've probably heard the, the Hebrew word for this, bar mitzvah. The, the son of the commands is what that actually means. But you see it in verse number six, then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. It's the things that God teaches us. The sixth word is laws. Not to be confused with law that you, we said to start with here, but these are often translated, other translations as ordinances or judgments. But it's basically, these are what is right based on what is just. It's a legally binding thing, but it has love underneath it. So that's kind of a complex term there. But we see that in verse number 7. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. Your righteous laws are what's just, and they're just based on your love. The seventh one here is word. This is the most common one that's used in this passage. It's what God actually says. So this is spoken word versus written word. Verse number 16, we see that. I delight in your decrees. I will not collect your word. And then the last one is the word uh, for, that we translate promise, which means this, that God will back up what he says. Not only did he say it, it's a guarantee that he'll follow through on this, and you can count on it or bank on it in your life. Verse number 82 is probably a good example for this. It says this, My eyes fail looking for your promise. I say, when will you comfort me? And so all of these different words we see translated differently in English, but they have just a little bit different meaning behind them. But the idea is that when we look at the Bible, that we see this as God saying, okay, here's the instructions to follow. But I'm giving them to you as somebody who, who's overseeing your life, who loves you and cares about you. I'm even writing them down. In fact, I want to get them so that they're just like etched on your heart so that you can live a good life. And so it's really a, a gift from God to us. 
Well, let me finish up here this morning by looking at eight ways that we can actually experience this that the writer of this chapter tells us about. And there's more here than what I'm just picking out. But let me just pick eight that are they're pretty prevalent, that show up more often than just once in this chapter here. The first thing that God's Word can do for us, or the ways that we can experience God's Word, is this. It keeps us from sin. God's Word keeps us from sin. Verse number 9 says this. How can a young person stay in the path of purity? The answer, by living according to your word. Verse number 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse number 127, because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. Your word helps keep me from sin. Now, how does it do that? Well, it does that, first of all, by shaping the way that we think. it, It shapes the way that we prioritize. And it shapes the way that we value. And as we get God's word into our minds and into our hearts, it changes what the values are, but it also serves as a moral standard. So when I'm facing a situation, it's easy for me to say what is right or what is wrong based on the fact that I know that from my knowledge of what the Bible says. And when I know what's right, then it's easier to do the right thing. And it gives us that moral standard of truth. Sometimes I think it actually helps us in the moment, too. You ever had that experience where you're kind of tempted to do something, and like this verse comes to mind, and you're like, oh, rats. Well, not really, because God, I think sometimes that the Bible, as it becomes part of us, when we face situations, those verses come to mind, and it keeps us going in the direction that we're supposed to go. I think you can see this even in the temptation of Christ. When Jesus quoted scripture, it wasn't like he was like waving a magic wand back at Satan. What he was saying is, hey, no, here's what the Bible says in this situation, and that tells me how I should act, so I'm not going to fall to this temptation. So the Bible, and as we know the Bible, it helps us say no to sin. Secondly, it gives us freedom. Verse number 32 says this, I run in the path of your commands. For you have broadened my understanding. Verse number 5 says, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. The idea here is that God's word gives us freedom because we don't have to live wondering what's okay or what's not okay. Will God like this? Or God like, not like this. Will this work? Will this not work? And so you, that you're constantly running in, in, into, uh, you know, borders. Now, in my yard, I have a dog that's a very strong-willed dog, but I have borders around my yard, and it's an electric fence, the, uh, the underground. And so um, my last dog had the same thing and, and never crossed that. I got this dog, put the same collar on her, and she was over it 10 times a day. So we finally had to get the, the, the uh, collar for stubborn dogs, and now she's like, no, I, think, I don't think I'll go past that. But you know what? She has a whole backyard to run around in. She doesn't need to go past it. And, and she has a great time in her backyard, especially if you're back there with her with a Frisbee. But this is what God's Word does for us. It gives us boundaries. Don't run into that charge, but live in this freedom of who you were made to be, this freedom of what this world's supposed to be about. And understand that it's really God's heart for you to fully experience what He created you to be. And so as we look at God's Word... We don't look at this and go, oh, so this is so restrictive. It just boxes me in. The opposite is true. It's like, oh, wow, 
look at all this that I can experience, can enjoy in life. And where God says, hey, don't do this, maybe it's a command over here. He's just saying, don't hurt yourself. And, and, and he says, you know, watch out for that there. He's just saying, this isn't where it's going to work because it's contrary to how I made the world. Thirdly here, it provides wisdom, understanding, and discernment. Verse number 29, keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me and teach me your law. Verse number 98, your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. Verse number 99, I have more insight than all my teachers. I meditate on your statutes. And what God's word does for us is it gives us discernment. There's a lot of stuff going on out there in the world, like a lot of messaging. And one of the things that we have to be able to do is say, wait a minute, is that true or is that not true? And you can sometimes it's like, well, it's all out there in the, in the world world. It's out there in the Christian world, too. And one of the things that God's Word does is we hear something and we can go back to it and say, wait a minute, does that square up? Does that line up with what the Bible says? Instead of just saying, well, you know what? So-and-so said it, and he's a good Christian, so it must be true. God's Word helps us be discerning. And it gives us the ability to weigh things and say, does that square up? Is that really the truth here? And I think this is maybe one of the strongest points that's made in this chapter, if you read through it, is God saying, hey, get, get, get yourself into the Word, get the Word into you, and it will give you discernment in life. Number four, it offers us comfort in our times of suffering and affliction. Verse number 50, my comfort in suffering is this, your promise preserves my life. Verse number 52, I remember, Lord, your ancient laws, and I find comfort in them. You ever have that moment in life when you're like just down or when things are just coming at you and things are not going the right way? And what do you do? It's like, you know what? I'm just going to sit down and read my Bible. It's a, great, it's a great response. And a lot of times we can find comfort there. Or sometimes what we do is, is we pull back a, a verse that maybe we memorized in the past. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That verse, that can be a comfort to me. Um, I was... Um, doing my Bible reading on Friday morning, and I was facing a whole bunch of different stuff that I had to deal with on Friday. And the verse that came up in the study that I'm doing right now was Deuteronomy 31.8, which is one of my favorite verses. It was actually in the, the memory section that we did back in April. We were talking about God's Word being formed in us, but it says what? He says, I will go, with you, uh, go before you and be with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. I will, I will take care of you in this moment. But God's Word is one of the greatest sources of comfort in our lives. A fifth thing that it does, it grants us guidance. Verse number 15, 50, no, excuse me, 59. I have considered my ways and turned my steps to your statutes. 105, classic verse here. You probably know this one. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Psalm 130, or verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Verse 133, direct my steps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. And the Bible is our greatest source book for just knowing what to do. You're facing, we face decisions all the time. Some of them are pretty simple. And sometimes we get into really complicated things like, I do not know what to do with this situation. God's word is there 
to help you. It's helped what's right and what's wrong, maybe what's more important or less important, what's your priority, what's your objective. Sometimes it shows up as a warning, but God's word comes, and it often says if you do this, this is how it's going to play out. If you do this, this is how it's going to play out, and it gives us guidance to know what to do. Now, all of this, as we talk about God's word, is in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, too. And sometimes I believe the Holy Spirit even in our lives is like, okay, wait a minute, think about this, and brings us back to the Scripture. The sixth thing here, it affords us strength when we are weary. Verse number 81, my soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I put my hope in your word. God's word can boost us back up when we are depleted. And I think we all know this, that we are interconnected beings. We're physical, we're mental, we're emotional, we're relational. But we get depleted in those lives. And sometimes, I think this is a good thing, that the spiritual can come in to re-energize us in some of those different areas of life where we get depleted. And so that's what the Bible does. And it certainly does that as we get worn down spiritually. It comes in and it gives us strength when we're worn out. And sometimes even when we're really worn out, we are so much more susceptible to temptation or, or to just like um, wanting to quit or give up or whatever. And we can come back and say, no, 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 here you go. This is what the Bible says. This is what God will do for you. And it comes as a supernatural power to give us strength. Number seven, it fills us with peace and joy. Psalm 165, great peace have they who love thy law. Nothing will make them stumble. Verse number 111, your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Everything that's going on around us, the chaos that swirls, what does it do? It just sucks the joy and it just sucks the peace right out of us. And God says, you know what? I've got something for you. Because peace and joy comes from the inside and so as you internalize God's word, the promise is that we find peace and joy. And so I would say when you're stressed, when you're anxious, when, 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 when you're worn out, all of these different things, one of the best things that we can do is simply expose ourselves to Scripture. Take more in. The last thing here, it says, gives us hope for the future. May those, verse number 74, may those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. You, verse number 114, you are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. And God's word gives us hope because it reminds us that we're part of a bigger story. It's not just about us, it's about God, and we're part of his story. But his story is going somewhere, and we find out about it in his word. And sometimes when we're like, oh, what's going on in my world and everything's turned upside down and, and I'm struggling with stuff, there's the hope that comes because God says, no, I'm in control. I got this. It's going somewhere, and I'm going to deliver it the way it's supposed to be at the end so you can relax and you can have hope. There's going to be a struggle, maybe, but don't let that struggle be more than it should be because you can hope in my word. And so we have three responses here as we conclude this morning. The first one is this. The word of God points us to the God of the word. And I mentioned this before, but I come back to it. The word of God reveals who God is. And so when we look at the word of God and, and we see this about God, 
That means that we can experience God in that way. So as, we, as it said that you know, he's the, promise, the one who keeps promises, well then he keeps promises to people like you and me. That's God revealing himself and he's saying, hey, trust me, trust me, trust me. Or when he says, I'm, I'm the, the guide, what he is saying is, I will be your guide in life. And so the word points us back to the author. And so we can, he can be revealed to us, but so that we can experience him. We talk about that all the time, don't we? How you can experience God. Anything you read in scripture about God is God saying, this is how you can experience me. It's revelation with invitation. The second thing. The Word of God gets into us as we get into the Word. There's no magic formula here. You simply have to expose yourself to God's Word. Coming on Sundays is a great start. We open up God's Word every time. But you're going to have to do some things on your own. The Bible app is a great tool, and there are great resources there. And if you ever want more help with that, stop Mark or stop me. We'd be happy to walk you through some of the things you can do on that app that will help you get into that. There are some places, if this is helpful to you, use a different translation, especially if you're using your phone. You've got about 40 choices there. And sometimes I'm like, I'm switching to a different translation here just so I can understand it better. Um, like the Christian Standard Version is one that I use quite a bit, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, the New Living Translation is pretty modern, but if you're struggling to understand something, switch to something like that, but get yourself into God's Word. And here's the last one. The Word of God is to be loved and is to be lived. I think for a lot of us, like daily Bible reading is something we do, and it's become habit. But it's not something that comes necessarily from our heart. Well, I mean, it is because we want to please God. But it's not something where we get up and it's like, oh, I can't wait to get back into the Word. When I was in high school, um, there was this kid who walked into our church one day and wanted to get baptized. And was like, what's that all about? And the story was he was living with his, his um, sister and he had gone to some concert in downtown South Bend, and some street preacher was talking about the rapture, and it got him all freaked out, and he went back and asked his sister, and he's like, what is that about? She says, I don't know, but my kids ride the Sunday school bus to church. Why don't you go with them? So he grabbed, on a t grabbed the towel, got on the bus, and went to church. And when he went to church, he heard about Jesus, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And uh, about six months later, he came to live in my house. And uh, my parents took him in because he really didn't have any family. And uh, Jim lived with us for seven years, something like that. And I still hear from him all the time. He's a, he's a crazy guy. And he'll, he travels for work, and I get phone calls from him. I go, oh, Jim's on the highway. Okay, what's up, Jim? But I still remember when Jim first came to Christ. He was an 18-year-old kid. Who, he'd grown up in the carnival. He was a carny. And uh, you would walk into his bedroom and he would be, I don't know how he could do this. He'd be lying on the bed with a New Testament up in the air, and he'd be asleep. And it was still there, and he hadn't moved. But that kid, everywhere he went, he took a Bible with him because he just couldn't get enough of it. That's what it means to, like, love God's Word, though, where I see it as more than just 
you know, there's 5,000 Bibles around. I mean, they're, they're everywhere, and they're on your phone. I mean, like, everybody has, and, and, and we've lost the mystery or the wonder of it. And we've lost our affection for it sometimes, I think. And where we just need to come back and say, what is, what, what's the, the, the poet writing here? Hey, love God's word. Think about this. The God of creation, we sang about him. Beyond our galaxy, he loved us enough to give us this book, and it's a personal gift to each one of us. How much do you love it? Do you have any affection? I realize it's just a, it's just a book, right? No. It's God's word to us. And if we loved it more, we'd probably be into it more. But the second part of that is it's also to be lived. God's word is never about filling our heads with knowledge. That's fine. But that knowledge needs to translate into transformation. And God's word has power as we take it and as we live it out. As we say, okay, that's what it says. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to order my life according to your word. And so we have this incredible poem. We have no idea who even wrote it. But whoever did teaches us something about how we need to see the word of God. Will you love it? Will you live it? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Help us today through your spirit to understand what a gift it is. God, stir our hearts so that we are more drawn, attracted, desirous of getting into it. Our heads are bowed. Let me just ask a couple of questions. First of all, we said it reveals, God's word reveals him. And it reveals him through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what communion was about this morning. You can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You can experience God through his word, but you need to experience God through Jesus Christ too. Do you have that relationship with him? Have you ever invited Christ into your life? Ask him to forgive your sins, to give you eternal forgiveness and eternal life. You can do that where you sit this morning. Invite him in. And the second question is this. Are you Christ follower? What is your relationship to God's word? How would you answer that question? Is it a key part of your life? Just a habit. Or is it something that your heart desires? It's something where you want to get into it. You want to know. You want to study. And are you living it? Maybe there's something even right now you know that you're ignoring it. What decision do you need to make? Heavenly Father, as we go from here, I pray that you would give us a heart, love your word, and a determination to live it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? So glad that you have joined us today. And uh, seriously, if we can help you with that Bible app, if that would be advantageous to you, we'd love to talk to you about that. Pastor Mark will be speaking the next two Sundays, and he'll be talking about a New Testament poet, I believe. That's still the plan. All right, so do you know that Paul was a poet? 
So he wrote some poetry too. So we're going to be looking at that. So Pastor Mark and uh, I will be heading out west. I got to get a couple kids relocated. So uh, taking some time to get them relocated and a few weeks of vacation. But we'll be back in a couple weeks. We will miss you while we're gone. But uh, we're leaving you in great hands. So you're dismissed. God bless you. Have a great day. Thank you.